Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between the informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this episode, as the world enters the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic, the crisis triggered by this global health emergency has severely hit informal workers' livelihoods and access to social protection. In the episode 20 of our podcast, we discussed the first round of the Wigo's Longitudinal Survey conducted in 2020. Now, the report of the second round of this global survey is being launched today. In this stage, 11 cities around the globe were part of the research that explored how the fallout of the pandemic affected informal workers' income, working hours, access to healthcare, but also their coping strategies, demands, and the government responses in the second year of the pandemic. To discuss some of the main findings of the research, we invited Ana Carolina Ogando and Mike Rogan. Ana Carolina is Wigo's research associate and holds a PhD in political science from the University of Minas Gerais, Brazil, and Mike is an associate professor in economics and economic history at Rhodes University in South Africa, and he is a researcher at Wigo. In this special episode, we also played some clips from workers' testimonies taken from two webinars of the Global Survey Project. And now, let's hear our talk with Ana Carolina Ogando and Mike Rogan. Ana Carolina and Mike Rogan, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Sirius. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks for inviting us. Uh, so this is the second round of this global survey. First of all, what was the objective of this edition of the research? What were you trying to capture this time? Can you quickly recap to the audience what is this project about? Let's start with you, Anna. Okay, thanks, Sirius. So the global study has really served the purpose of shedding light on the depth of devastating livelihood loss and the inability of informal workers to recover. So just to provide an overview and, and situate our listeners, the Global Crisis Study was a mixed methods longitudinal study that was designed to understand the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic across key four sectors of informal workers, including domestic workers, home-based workers, street vendors and waste pickers in 11 cities across the global north and south. And in some of these cities, other sectors also participated in the study. So in both rounds of the study, we were working to map the multidimensional impacts of the pandemic on workers' lives and the pathways of recovery for the specific sectors. And one key area we sought to better understand were the differentiated impacts on workers' earnings and ability to work. Part of this story also included understanding if and to what extent unpaid care responsibilities were also impacting men and women's ability to work and recover their livelihoods. So here we were really looking at whether reports of increases in childcare, care for the sick or elderly, increases in household responsibilities such as cooking and cleaning 
were impacting the time workers could actually spend on paid work. We were also very much interested in understanding how government restrictions were influencing livelihood security and if there had been any noted increases or decreases in punitive enforcement practices against informal workers in these cities. So with this attention to the role governments were playing in either hindering or supporting informal workers, the study was also interested in capturing workers' access to relief measures and the barriers for accessing these throughout time. But in addition to tracing the economic impacts of the pandemic on informal workers' lives, we were also interested in looking at the impacts on workers' health. So part of that was looking at whether informal workers were receiving any kind of support for implementing safety protocols and guidelines, if they were receiving any support for accessing personal protective equipment, and also the costs of purchasing these personal protective equipment. We were interested in understanding if there were increases in occupational health risks. And a very important theme that we looked at in round two was workers' access to vaccines. And while there were many really other themes explored in the study, I'll just note that a fourth dimension was looking at workers' coping and adaptation strategies. So we've really been able to track these impacts on close to 2,000 workers over time, which was really only possible with the support, the collaboration, and commitment of local organizations of informal workers and local research teams. So just to quickly go back to your question about what we've managed to see in round two, I think the findings help trace the depth of loss for these workers and how persistent the economic fallout remains. The story we're seeing playing out on the ground is still quite dire, as we know workers are continuing to face food insecurity. They're struggling to meet household expenses, and they're particularly concerned with rising prices as they struggle to recover. So I think the data is really pointing in the direction of a deepening of pre-existing inequalities for many of these informal workers. Okay, so now we learned from the first round of the survey collected in the first year of the pandemic that the informal workers were severely affected when the pandemic hit, and the restrictions were implemented by then. But now in most places, the lockdown measures have been removed. Were you able to assess if informal workers' income recovered to the pre-pandemic levels? And um, what about working hours? What did the data that you collected uh, showed us? Yeah, thanks. Uh, to answer in short, the workers that we interviewed are a lot better off than they were at the very beginning of the pandemic. And remember, that was the time when most cities around the world and, and most countries were in some sort of extreme lockdown. Uh, but they're still nowhere near where they were before the pandemic. So the road to recovery is far from complete. If we think about, for example, uh, working hours, informal workers are still working 27% fewer days per week or hours per week than they were before the pandemic. Uh, so before all of this started, our sample was working about five and a half days per week on average. And this has only improved to about four after the initial massive drop in, in the ability to work at the, at the beginning of the crisis. So work, informal workers are not back at work 18 months into the pandemic. That's probably one of the key findings from the survey. And if you think about it, missing more than 25% of your working hours, no matter what type of job you have, is a pretty significant impact. So it's probably not surprising to anyone at all that 
earnings are far from recovered to pre-pandemic levels. Taking a look at those 2,000 workers as a whole, earnings were still only about 64% of their pre-pandemic levels. So if you just stop and think about what that means for a second, it means that our typical worker in our, in our sample of 2,000 workers was still missing 36% of their earnings. Now, for any job, for any one of us, a loss of 36% of your income is a pretty serious setback. But I think here it's important to remember that uh, these particular type of workers, informal workers from middle and low income countries, are often near or below their country's working poverty lines. So any loss of income for these particular workers is pretty detrimental to meeting basic household needs and on a bigger level would be a ser pretty serious setbacks to meeting poverty reduction targets, the sustainable development goals, et cetera. So I think the message here really is that 18 months into the crisis, and our last interview was just over six months ago with these particular workers, the crisis is very much ongoing. Um, there was the initial shock that we talked about and that, that Anna described, but still current earnings have far from recovered from there pre-pandemic levels. I think the only other thing to point out is that we were interested in different groups of workers, occupations such as waste pickers and street vendors, domestic workers and, and home-based workers, and the recovery of earnings and the reasons for these uh, different levels of, of recovery were, were fairly different across the worker groups. We found in particular that home-based workers uh, were doing worse in 2021 than they were in 2020 at the height of the pandemic. The, the literal drying up of work orders for home-based workers, and particularly in Indian cities, meant that income was only 2% of, of its pre-pandemic levels for, for home-based workers, which is quite a shocking finding. One of the more common groups, street vendors, uh, were earning about 60% of their pre-pandemic earnings. So across the board, earnings are far lower than they were before the pandemic started, even if the, the situation is slightly improved from the, the beginning of the pandemic in, in March and April 2020. Sisters like uh, me were very badly impacted uh, by COVID uh, and uh, the uh, home-based workers we were facing slew of uh, problems uh, like uh, we uh, got a uh, work from the contractors the contractors were not giving us work markets were closed uh, and uh, then when the second wave of covid uh, came at uh, that uh, point of time uh, so many people were dying there was so much of uh, fear at that uh, time uh, so uh, they, we could not uh, go uh, anywhere for work. The rates are very low. They are very dismal. Uh, if uh, um, uh, we were getting one rupee earlier, now we are getting 50 pesa. Uh, earlier we were getting 10 pesa. Now we are give, give, getting just five pesa. We are laboring so hard nowadays, but not earning enough. Uh, now um, we are getting such a low amount that it is very difficult to earn our livelihood. We are working so hard, but not getting anything in return. In the onset of COVID-19, our access to recyclable materials has been difficult. Now, the volumes, quality and prices of the materials we collect have reduced so much. This has resulted in reduction of our incomes. For example, before plastic, a kilo of plastic is getting to three CDs per kilo, but now it has reduced to 1.2 CDs per kilo, which is really, really affecting the, the, the income of the, the waste pickers. 
This was Johnson Doe, a waste speaker leader from the Pone Landfill Waste Speakers Association in Accra, Ghana. Earlier, we heard Shalu, a home-based worker leader from Delhi, India. Okay, so now in, in the first year of the pandemic, there were a range of different governmental responses to the crisis, and some of which contemplated informal workers. In the second year, though, there was an even greater number of contaminations and deaths. Were there any significant changes in relation to these relief measures of the first year in the second year of the pandemic in the cities surveyed by your team? And what kind of barriers have you observed that informal workers faced to access these relief measures in the second year of the crisis? I mean, overall, I think what the, the survey suggests is that the large negative shock and impact of the crisis and the pandemic was not met with a commensurate response by, by governments. So we looked at two different types of relief measures. We looked at uh, different types of cash relief, uh, where governments rolled out different types of cash transfers. And we looked at more immediate food relief, where local or national governments rolled out uh, food packages to households in, in need. And really what we found is that there was not much difference between the receipt of either cash or food relief by governments between 2020 and, and 2021. So if we think about cash relief, first of all, um, of course, there were large differences by, uh, by city. These are, these are largely national level or city level initiatives to provide cash relief. But if we take our sample as a whole, in 2020, about 37% of our respondents reported receiving some type of cash transfer from government. And in 2021, this increased very marginally to about 39%. So I think we could say on the whole, and more or less across the cities as well, very little difference in the receipt of, of cash grants or cash relief to mitigate the, the negative impacts of the crisis. Uh, food relief was similar. Uh, the difference is that we actually saw a slight decrease in the receipt of, uh, of food packages and other types of food relief from government. In 2020, when we, we really interviewed workers at the height of the crisis in 2020, and at that stage, about 42% of our sample across these 11 cities uh, reported receiving some type of food relief from government. But this decreased to, to 37% in 2021. So I think we would describe this as a plateauing or even leveling off of, of government support in terms of, of cash and, and food relief. We asked many of the respondents or in the survey and in some qualitative research what barriers they experienced. And many of them spoke to us about the complicated uh, application processes, the, the requirement for documentation that they, they didn't have. But I think what's what this really points to is, is two major obstacles to, to getting uh, relief to informal workers. The first is that a number of these initiatives were very short term. So they were, they were basically designed to provide emergency relief at the height of the pandemic. So we're talking about March, April, May, and June 2020. And this makes sense to some extent because this was the period when the first wave of the pandemic was hitting. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, governments had such severe restrictions that in many contexts, people weren't even allowed uh, out of their homes. So that's the first sort of obstacle is many of these efforts were um, intended to be very short term. 
Uh, the second is, is more uh, systemic in the sense that even before the pandemic, many informal workers fell into a category that's sometimes described as the missing middle. So in other words, they earn a little bit too much uh, to be targeted by extreme poverty relief, but they don't earn enough to fall in uh, within sort of more formal social protection uh, schemes, things like social insurance. So they fall in that area of social protection, which means that they're sort of outside of the, the social protection system, which meant that it was difficult to reach them uh, when some governments intended to roll out social protection to provide cash relief on a, on a longer term basis. So what we saw across the cities was in some places, the short term measures in 2020 were no longer being offered in 2021. But in other contexts, governments took a long time to respond so that some relief measures were only taking place in 2021, even though they tried to roll them out in 2020, but found that many informal workers were simply outside of the databases and, and the architecture of social protection systems. So getting cash relief to them took a long time. Perfect. Let's pass the ball now to Anna. One key issue in the second year of the pandemic was the access to vaccination. Uh, what were the main issues informal workers had in the 11 cities you surveyed regarding this subject? Thanks, Cyrus. That's a really good question. And I think I'll start off by talking about some of the rates of vaccination and also the barriers that we heard from both the quantitative and qualitative data. So overall, by mid-2021, we were seeing low vaccination rates across the 11 cities with very few exceptions. And one of those was in New York. And the higher vaccination rates there clearly illustrate the vaccine divide playing out across the globe. And I think we also saw some higher vaccination rates in Indian cities, such as Ahmedabad and Delhi, which reflect the fact that round two data was collected after vaccine campaigns by the government of India, and also the advocacy efforts of many local informal worker organizations there. But when looking at the vaccine rates from our survey data across the cities, some of our lowest rates among workers were particularly with waste pickers in Dakar, where only 7% of the workers there mentioned they had received a vaccine in round two. And another striking case was in Lima, Peru. Now, just to recall, Lima had one of the strictest lockdowns of all the 11 cities in our study, and Peru in general had the worst COVID-19 per capita death rate in the world. So from our study, we picked up that 15% of workers in our sample responded to having received the vaccine. So that gives us an overview of where we were at in terms of access to vaccines. If we look at the vaccination rates across sectors, we were seeing that waste pickers were the least vaccinated. And we know that they're an occupational group that already experiences high levels of occupational health risks. So some of the explanations that we were seeing for low rates of vaccination, again, both the quantitative and qualitative data, was mainly attributed to the insufficient supplies of vaccines across the cities. But the study also found that workers were reporting other barriers. And one of these was access to reliable and clear information on the vaccines. So particularly in our interviews with workers and worker leaders, we were hearing a lot about the fear and confusion around the vaccine. And I think this was also linked to workers' fears of the vaccine's side effects. And they were saying that they were worried that this would take them away from work, resulting in further livelihood loss. 
but the data also pointed to workers' distrust of the state and particularly health systems. And so as a result of these barriers, we were really seeing fear and mistrust playing out in the cities. And this is where informal worker organizations played a fundamental role because they quickly stepped in to support workers with regard to multiple health concerns, not only vaccine access. So drawing from the workers and worker leaders interviews, we were able to understand the great efforts taken by several informal worker organizations to provide then reliable and accessible information on safety protocols throughout the pandemic, but also on vaccines to counter this misinformation that the workers were receiving. And so interviews also highlighted another side of the story that I thought I'd share, which is that vaccines were considered an extremely vital way to get back to work for the workers. So for example, in Thailand, HomeNet Thailand and the Federation of Informal Workers helped advocate for vaccines for informal workers through the Ministry of Labor. And in particular, the worker leaders were understanding the challenges that migrant domestic workers were facing to access vaccines. And they also helped procure vaccines for this group as well. So while much of the story has been of challenges and fears related to health impacts, I do think that in the interviews, we were seeing some noticeable examples from worker leaders reporting on increases in health awareness amongst workers throughout the pandemic. But unfortunately, with these low vaccine rates, slow vaccine rollouts, and really little support from local governments to improve the safety at workplaces, these workers continue to be unprotected and they continue to face greater occupational health risks. The situation in Thailand hit 9,000, almost 10,000, and the government have limited testing facility. This is very difficult for us to access the testing facility in government um, hospital and private hospital. They do not accept testing. So each day there are thousands of people, but the testing facility cannot accommodate thousands of people. They have to camp in the mobile testing unit. Some people do not get tested immediately within in a day and people who were tested positive thousands of them are waiting at home isolation because they are not assigned to the hospital and facility those in the people or a couple of those in the people die at home without accessing the treatment in a medical facility many people want vaccination despite the know that the government vaccination program is not efficient to prevent the covid but we do not have enough vaccination for the people in Bangkok and the Greater Bangkok, the situation contributed to inequalities and the government do not have appropriate remedies for the people. For example, recovery package, access to medical facility as well as social security um, remedy package. The police or the military, the member of the armed force can access uh, vaccine first and foremost comparing to the informal people. This was Manop Kayufaka president of the Federation of Informal Workers Thailand. Mm. Okay, so now let's move on. The somewhat weaker government response in the second year of the crisis together with the impact that still lingered over informal workers have made them resort to some coping strategies 
that you have observed in your survey, what were these main coping strategies that these informal workers have resorted to? Yeah, that's, that's right. In both 2020 and 2021, with the drastic drop in, in income and the fairly muted response from government, a lot of workers were, were forced to take some fairly serious actions to try and keep themselves in their and their households afloat. So focusing just between 2020 and 2021, so in you know more or less the, the second year of the COVID crisis, in our sample anyway, uh, over half, about 54% of, of the workers that we surveyed either borrowed money or bought essential household goods on credit. And we know from the focus groups and past research that many of these loans that workers took out were of an informal nature, with unsustainable interest rates. So this isn't really considered sustainable debt. And the worry really is that a number of workers have dug themselves into a hole that'll be very difficult to get out of, particularly in the, in the short term. So we're worried that over half of the sample that we interviewed has taken on unsustainable debt just in the second half of the crisis, never mind the sort of drastic measures they took at the beginning of the crisis and when the impact was the most severe. Uh, we found also that over a third, about 35% of, of our survey participants dipped into their typically already meager savings. So the depletion of savings was something that we'd been monitoring from the, the first round of the survey. Uh, of course, not all uh, informal workers and in their households were in a position to draw on savings, but amongst those that did, about 82 to 85% weren't able to uh, replenish those savings at all in the in the six months prior to the period that we interviewed them. So the safety net that they've built up over years and in many cases seems to have been depleted uh, as a result of the lack of any other option or alternative to keep the household afloat. Two other really worrying coping mechanisms that we encountered were the reduction of household consumption and in particular nearly a quarter of workers reported some sort of reduction in food consumption. And again, we need to remember that a lot of these workers live in households that were pretty close to, if not below their country's poverty lines. So this reduction in, in food consumption is, is particularly worrying. In addition to high prevalence of hunger in these households, close to 60% of, of all the households or all the workers we, uh, we interviewed indicated that members of their household skipped meals in the past year. So the lack of food seems to have been a necessary but an unfortunately unavoidable coping strategy for a number of, of workers. One of the other common, sort of two of the more common coping mechanisms we also encountered were the delayed payment of obligations, often for uh, existing debt or services uh, such as electricity and, and water or delayed rental payments. So again, Another way that a number of these workers are finding themselves increasingly in debt 18 months into the, the pandemic. And then one of the other ones we found that was common in, in both rounds of the survey was the selling off of household assets. And of course, anytime assets are sold, that's a, a fairly serious concern for any prospect of, of recovery. So unfortunately, we found that many workers that we interviewed were taking on or adapting some of these what we would refer to as negative coping strategies, largely because they would uh, seriously impact on the ability to recover even once earnings uh, were to stabilize again, hopefully some point in the future. 
when the domestic workers, home-based workers have not fully recovered, they have not have orders or job, and then they were hit with the second wave of the pandemic. We do not have the order and we have to type like sell or pause our properties or our gears. So when we do not have anyone to turn to because our relative as well as friends and colleagues are in the situation, that was the situation in the second wave. Now with the third wave, it is just like making us, um, you know, like feel even more impoverished. People need to rely on many adaptive strategies. For example, I used to work at normal price and everybody is doing the price cutting. It's just like Mati have said that the market have closed, no orders, but people have to compete on in cutting down the price and people are unemployed. They have to sell their equipment. They become like um, kind of like um, food vendor that make the situation of the street vendor, food vendor more competitive. It's making the situation more difficult to different sectors. Some people decided to return home because they cannot afford the utility bill and the rent. I don't know when will the situation will improve. This was Manop Kayufak again, president of the Federation of Informal Workers Thailand. So let's now focus on the other end. What was the role of informal workers organizations concerning the support to workers? Anna? In mid-2021, we were able to map how street vendors and waste picker leaders focused heavily on the promotion of occupational health and safety protocols. And this was in fact crucial for worker organizations to counter the narratives that were coming out of workers in public space as vectors of the disease. But it was also crucial for them to push for long-held demands for decent and safe workplace infrastructure. And a theme expressed by workers and worker leaders in the interviews was this notion that they were ready to comply and abide by the safety protocols. But they just needed local government support in setting up safer work sites, helping them provide for personal protective equipment, and just basically guaranteeing access to water at work sites. So for me, this speaks to workers' understanding of their roles and responsibilities in upholding the safety protocols, but it also points to what they would expect from government in terms of some degree of responsiveness to their demands and needs to minimally secure their livelihoods and physical well-being. And if we now look to domestic workers and home-based worker leaders, who are leading exclusively female membership-based organizations, they continue to provide support to address the immediate material needs and legal needs of their worker bases. But in the case of domestic workers who are experiencing greater levels of mental health strains, we were really seeing how domestic worker leaders stepped in to provide psychological and moral support through even new communication strategies with their membership base. So interviews with domestic worker leaders in Lima and Mexico City reflected on the processes set up to support both live-in and live-out domestic workers during the pandemic. In Lima, for example, in round two, we heard about a domestic worker organization providing an in-house psychologist to reach out to their domestic worker base. And this was important to enable a safe space for these workers to discuss the challenges they were facing and especially the new forms of exploitation. 
In Mexico City, similarly, another domestic worker organization set up groups to share information with these workers, especially on how to defend their rights at work and how to access legal protection. So it was really poignant to read and learn about a very strong logic of care, solidarity, and resilience of many of these organizations. But having said that, in round two, we were also picking up on the fact that worker leaders were experiencing clear strains to provide the same scope and depth of support for their workers in light of the lack of government and even private sector support. So from Seva, uh, I uh, gave masks uh, to my sisters. Then provision of a ration was also made by Seva. I helped uh, the sisters to get a ration uh, from uh, Seva. And uh, like I behaved like a leader. I played a leadership uh, role. And I tried uh, to give utmost assistance uh, from uh, Seva and from a contractor. Uh, from the contract also, I uh, uh, gave some work uh, like mask, uh, making of masks. West Vegas have been undertaking various steps to reduce the impact of COVID-19 on us and the threats that we face. Through our association, we in our own way have been extending support to the most vulnerable one among us, such as the elderly, those with medical conditions and the injury waste pickers, uh, which in our own level, we are trying to provide some social support to them, although it's, it will not be enough, but it's good we started uh, working together or uniting them in terms of this, providing this support with uh, also the issues related to COVID. We also make sure uh, our members were well informed about the COVID protocols, the uh, trainings, and other safety measures that we need to adopt. This was John Sando again, a waste speaker leader from the Pawn Landfield Waste Speakers Association in Accra, Ghana. Earlier, we heard another testimony from Shalu, a home based worker leader from Delhi, India. Hmm. And what were the main workers' demands that you found, Anna? Sure. So I think round two highlighted some overarching demands across the four key sectors, and they also captured sector-specific demands. Now, some of these also connect very clearly to the demands we saw in round one. But to begin answering your question, I'll, I'll focus on some of the common demands across the cities and sectors. So unsurprisingly, the first demand that we continued to hear in round two was that informal workers still presented a great need for immediate relief to cover basic needs such as food, rent, utilities, school fees, and even to cover some of their debt. And by mid-2021, it was clear that these workers were in a very precarious position and even for those that were showing some signs of recovery of their earnings, as Mike's pointed out, this really wasn't enough to help make up for the negative coping strategies, such as borrowing money, incurring debt, and so on. So I think this is what I'd really like to underscore here about workers' demand for immediate relief. And the second demand we heard very strongly was on the need for support to recover existing livelihoods through grants or especially no interest loans. Um, the third 
demand that we heard also was the need to improve access to social protection, which is a long-held demand. And this would include expanding social assistance, including informal workers in schemes such as pensions, and really improving access to essential services such as healthcare and childcare. And I'd just like to point out a fourth demand as well, which was for local governments to simply guarantee workers access and right to work in public spaces to decriminalize informal workers and their livelihood activities. So there's this excerpt from an interview from a woman street vendor in Lima, Peru, that I often come back to because I think it captures this sentiment in such a powerful way. And this woman street vendor was recounting all the punitive practices carried out by the municipalities, even at the harshest moments of the pandemic in the city. And when we asked her in the interview what the government could be doing to support workers, she basically said that without her work, without vending on the streets, she wouldn't be able to keep up with her children's school fees so that her children wouldn't have to be vendors on the streets in the future. And she went on to say that her work is just one path to hopefully break the cycle of poverty. So I think this discussion really stuck with me because it so accurately reflects how trapped and, and marginalized many of these workers have felt throughout the pandemic. But I think it also points to the possibilities for deepening intergenerational poverty among informal workers' households. And again, this is reflective of all the multidimensional impacts we've been discussing here today. Okay, so now to wrap up, what were the main learnings that you have taken from the analysis of the impact of the COVID-19 crisis in these 11 cities? What are the, the key policy recommendations you would make? Let's start, let's start with you, Mike. I think we couldn't do much better than listening to the workers' demands themselves. I think they've really highlighted the key areas for policy. But if I could highlight three, I think the first would be to pay much more attention to direct support for the livelihoods of informal workers. Uh, we know before the crisis, but particularly during the crisis, various types of support for small businesses, which many governments recognized, were intended to support informal workers as well. But it almost always seemed that informal workers fell between the gaps there, uh, as they typically do. Um, they didn't have the right type of registration or documentation to take advantage of the, of the different types of support for formal small businesses. And I think informal workers and their demands and the demands through their membership-based organizations recognize that. That particular type of direct lively support was, was missing. And that basically comes to a lack of recognition of the role they play in, in local economies. Second, I think really this past two years has been the moment for social protection. As I mentioned earlier, informal workers have always fallen in that gap of the missing middle. So in many ways, this crisis was just a disaster waiting to happen uh, with so many people outside of the of formal social protection uh, systems. So this is a moment uh, to try and, and remedy that and find ways to extend social protection to what is really the majority of the world's workforce. 61% uh, of, of workers we know in the world are informal and by definition are lacking social protection. That's not a sustainable uh, situation. And really one of the lessons from the crisis has to be we need to rethink the, the gap in social protection that we have globally for, for most of the, the world's workers. 
And then I think the third thing is, is trying to think more carefully about what building back better means for the bulk of the global workforce. We can think about it in a number of different ways, but perhaps the one that offers some opportunity is how to build supply chains from below. Uh, so how do we involve informal workers in these formal supply chains? So for home-based workers, for example, governments could have the opportunity to have goods and services provided by these workers. Many of them already work for multinational supply chains and technology and, and the garment sector. So there's no reason we couldn't incorporate them in, into government procurement. And if we think about other groups of informal workers, such as waste pickers, it seems sensible that local governments and, and national governments uh, could bring them into formal uh, recycling value chains. Um, they could ensure and, and improve access to recycling facilities, sorting facilities, and allow them to be a part of, of the value chains in which they're already inserted. But above all, I, I think what we take from the, the study is that some sort of return to normal would be a real missed opportunity and probably a real setback in terms of uh, sustainable development goals. I mean, if we're really, really serious about reducing poverty and, and meeting the sustainable development goals, we have to more than make up for the shock that most of the world's workers have experienced. We have to find some way to help them recover from that shock and to build back better, but seriously. Without that, we've, we've lost an opportunity and, and probably some measurable amount of development progress. Um, we might be looking at something like a lost decade unless we're able to meet the immediate needs of informal workers and then find a way to build back better. Thanks, Mike. Anna, do you want to jump in? Sure. So I think for me, there are three takeaways or principles that connect many of the workers' demands. And, you know, we've talked a lot about this at WeGo before, and especially at the onset of the pandemic. But the first one is really the do no harm principle. And that was a key message of ours, which comes back to, again, what that woman street vendor in Lima, Peru was demanding, which is really for governments to put an end to unfair and punitive practices, such as harassment, confiscations, and evictions for those workers in public spaces. And I think a second principle that cuts across some of the demands as well is this commitment to representation and participation. So for that, it's really, again, a long-standing demand from informal worker organizations and leaders for governments to commit to bringing workers to key decision-making settings so that they're heard and that their knowledge is, is included and that they're key stakeholders and not just in, you know, ad hoc, one-off or tokenistic moments of participation. And I think what ties a lot of what Mike was saying and what I'm trying to bring in here, but also what our data was reflecting is that the basis for all of this is just the principle of simply beginning to recognize the role informal workers play in sustaining households and contributing to their communities cities and the economy and it comes down to whether or not governments are willing i think to center workers livelihoods and well-being and their recovery policies to address the ongoing impacts of covid that are so clear for us now but really to prepare for and, and mitigate against future crises perfect thank you anna anna carolina ogando and mike rogan thank you very much Thank you, Sirius. Thanks for inviting us. And 
if you want to learn more about the COVID-19 crisis and the informal economy study, we will leave at the description of the episode the link to the report that is being launched today. We will also leave links to the two webinars from which we've taken the audios of this episode. And don't forget to follow Wigo in our social media channels, Twitter and Facebook to get our most updated publications and news. I am Cyrus Afshar and this was the Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. See you next time.